Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. This is Raul Pal, the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision. And welcome to my podcast. Every week, I'm lucky enough to speak to tons of smart and innovative people in the financial game. I get so much insight from these conversations, and that's why I wanted to start this podcast, so I can share that knowledge with you. I hope you learn from the discussions, and you can always find more in-depth content at realvision.com. Enjoy the show. Yeah, it's fabulous to get you back on Real Vision. No, wonderful. But, you know, what, how long ago has it been? I just it's, checked, it's, actually. so fast. October the 15th, but in, but in uh, crypto years, that's about 10 years. <laughs> October? Oh my goodness. That last year, October, the world has completely changed, actually, if you think about it. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. So let, let's talk a bit about that. Let's talk about a little bit about the broader picture of the world, uh, crypto, blockchain, where, where it is now. And then we'll talk about the ridiculous amount of things you've been up to and sure. you know, kind of a bit about where it's going, what you're seeing, that kind of stuff. But what's your observations now about where we are in all of this? So, you know, a lot of people talk about the current state and I, I often get this comment about, oh, it's a crypto winter and, you know, you've got to hunker down and all that stuff. And, but, you know, and you would remember this as well. We really experienced what a true crypto winter was like, you know, around 2018. And so, you know, if this is a crypto winter, then four years ago was truly a crypto ice age. So it's a bit, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit different. So we think the weather is very chilly, but it's not a winter from our perspective. But the other thing that I also think that's happening, which is really interesting, you know, when you think about what happened with Terra, Three Arrows, and all these um, sort of, you could argue in some ways for a certain generation of crypto people, cataclysmic events. Actually, for the people in our space, which is in the more in the non-fungible uh, space, the culture space, even though obviously values have come down and, and all that stuff, they haven't been affected in quite the same way because it's not their world. And so I actually think it almost a shift of the narrative of why you're going into crypto, because the people who went into crypto in the early days were very financially oriented, because, you know, at the end of the day, it, you know, one of uh, blockchain's very first use cases was a heavily financial one. And the people who joined the space were really looking for, in many cases, the speculative value, the gains to potentially be had. And after all of this sort of, let's call it, mini collapse that took place uh, just a few months ago, that particular crowd uh, became less vocal. Uh, maybe they disappeared, some of them, but it no longer became the predominant narrative of crypto, which frankly was a little, you know, getting to some extent a little distasteful in some ways, you know, when you see, you know, the, the, the expensive cars and the yachts and the wind Lambo and, you know, all these things that, you know, we can laugh about, but it is quite sort of um, galling and distasteful for all the people who are not in the space and who look at this and say, isn't this just another tool for the rich? And doesn't it just exacerbate the problems of the world that we already see today? And now making wave, uh, making room for a, a new wave of people who are not sort of in that particular space in the same way, who care about the products, who care about building. And what I love about a, let's call it little winter chill, if you want to call, it, uh, call this, is that the people who are building in this time, as when we've done back in 2018 and the investments and opportunities we saw, they do it because they believe in something greater. Because again, if you are just here for the money, maybe you'll find better opportunities. Uh, certainly in 2018, that was true. Uh, but, you know, our, some of our most high profile success stories, whether it's a Sandbox or Decentraland or Axie Infinity or OpenSea or Dapper Labs, actually, we worked with them all back in 2018, 2019. That's how we got our opportunity to also invest in them, or in some cases, um, sort of own them. And that actually is um, is the opportunity, and we see it exactly the same way. So from our perspective, since we take a long view, actually, this is the best time to build, because also from an investment standpoint, it's no longer just, um, you know, you got to close the deal next week, otherwise you miss out, <laughs> right? You actually have time to do sort of a length, lengthier and more sort of thorough due diligence, 
You can have conversations with the team. Nobody expects the deal will close, you know, within the next five days. It's more like, okay, you know, we need to analyze and review. And, and, um, and I think that's actually created a, a much healthier uh, sort of environment as well. And at the end of the day, when you look at the value, just as an example, as the value of the tokens in question, it's a blip, really. Because when you compare it from 2018 to where we are today, uh, which is really only four years, right? Um, it's actually, um, you know, generally a pretty positive lineup. But then if you have to take the lens for the last six months, you might say, oh my goodness, disaster. Uh, and, you know, I just, um, I was just in Korea about two weeks ago, speaking of Korea Blockchain Week. And I gave a parallel, a comparison between sort of the miracle of the Han River, which is basically the Korean economy. And for those who don't maybe know, Korea, actually some four decades ago, its economic capacity, size, and population was much, it was actually smaller than North Korea. And uh, it now, you know, it's, you know, somewhere between number 10 or number 12 in the global GDP, right? It's, it's one of the wealthiest, most powerful nations in the world. And one interesting thing is that it's entirely driven by the value and power of culture because South Korea doesn't have natural resources. It doesn't have oil. It doesn't have, it, what it has is intellectual capacity. It has innovation, it has ideas, it has culture. Um, but all the things, you know, that it did to evolve to where it is today. And then you remember the Asian economic crisis and that was pretty disastrous. But when you chart it out, it ends up looking like a blip as well, right? In the relative span of where Korea was and where it is today. So I, I view this current scenario, you know, in a, in a very similar lens. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point. Uh, South Korea, you know, going back to 98, got absolutely obliterated as all did all the Asian economies. But the funding that really had gone into Korea in the prior 10 years ended up being the outcome afterwards, which was this incredible economy. And what I'm noticing now in the digital asset markets is, what, 60 billion of VC money went in in the last 18 months? And it's almost at the perfect time. Yes, the, you know, a year ago, everyone was still scrambling to do deals too quickly. But basically, there's been a huge amount of capital put in over this period of building when everybody's focused on actually building stuff and not on the price goes up, you know, number go up, because that's distracting for everybody. So it kind of feels like the set of outcomes coming out of this might potentially be really game-changing because the amount of capital that went in and the number of new paths that everybody's taking here. One other interesting parallel as well is if you look at, for instance, blockchain gaming, um, almost all the funding in the last six to 12 months has gone into blockchain gaming companies in the gaming space, for instance, which is basically just another signal of the inevitability of where blockchain gaming is going because of just the investment. Also, the smartest people in gaming are starting to look at that and have either already joined or built startups and, and entered this field. And perhaps the other interesting statistic is that in the last six to 12 months, uh, many investors who are not in crypto have entered the uh, sort of the Web3 world or the you know, blockchain world through gaming for the first time. So their lens, their entry into blockchain. So it's not just adoption of the sort of mass consumer. It's actually the adoption of the traditional investor as well, because they understand the narrative and they appreciate that, that potential differently than, say, let's invest in a token um, that you can trade, for instance, but more the fundamental of, you know, while a game that has ownership should be more powerful as a narrative, should be more meaningful to the end user, um, has maybe better revenue potential. These, these sort of more fundamental aspects um, are attractive to, I guess, the traditional value investor. And so they've entered uh, the, the world of crypto through gaming. I think one of the really interesting projects that's been an enormous rise since we last spoke was Yuga. Yes. You know, Yuga really were the pioneers of building a community around an NFT a PFP, but then created an entire ecosystem around it, you know, with the, the genius of, you know, buying CryptoPunks and all of that as well, the, um, the Lava Lab stuff. And then on top of it, then they're moving towards gaming with the metaverse experience of the other side. And we're seeing these things all merge together. So we've got kind of NFTs, they've got a social token, which is a fungible token, and they've got now a metaverse experience, which is probably based around gaming, as far as we know. Maybe just one clarification as far as ApeCoin is concerned. Actually, the way to think of it is that, you know, it's not 
it's not their token, right? ApeCoin is its own token. And, you know, Yugo Labs adopted the token, um, but it, of course, started, you could say, through, you know, the drop, basically, through the community of Yugo, you could say, but but it doesn't end there, right? So, and the whole idea of ApeCoin as a foundation is to expand and grow the, the metaverse and, and as, a, as an entire space. Uh, and But but the separately, Yugo Labs, with, with the other side, also is separately also making games. So, our studio, anyway is producing separate games with uh, with Yuga Labs, for instance, and that has already been announced. But uh, you know the details of that, you know, still to be still to be disclosed. But you know, there's many partnerships that they're building on, and gaming really, if you think about it, for the, this particular generation, is one of the strongest, most powerful forms of distributing culture and distributing sort of media and information, because that's where we spend most of our time, right? Gaming as an industry today, anyway, is already larger than film and music combined. Uh, last year was a hundred and eighty to one hundred and ninety billion dollar industry, um, and occupies the attention of three point four billion people today. Now, the whole internet is something like five billion people, give or take, which basically means most of the world is gaming. So, the other thing is that in gaming, the attention, the time you spend in gaming, is also far more immersive than watching a movie. And I think that is sort of the important part about that every metaverse project, you know, whether it's through PFP, whether it's through whatever aspect it is, must have a gaming strategy of some sort, because gaming is the is the mechanism uh, in which the soft power of that culture is distributed. America's soft power and America's power, you know, we believe anyway, isn't just the military and the U.S. dollar. That's obviously the hard power, you could say. But actually, what made the hard power possible to execute was the fact that it had the most influential cultural soft power in the world, which was Hollywood, right? And its literature. You know, we're watching, you know, Friends, and we're watching, you know, Marvel movies, and we're watching, what do they do? They disseminate American culture, American values to the rest of the world, and that's how they influence it. And then when, you know, American business enters these countries, they're open to it. They're friendly. They're like, oh, wait, you know, yes, we like the system. We like this culture. We want hamburgers. We want whatever, Nike shoes, you know, whatever that is. Uh, we're, the, the world has basically been already sort of um, influenced through the soft power of American culture. And the metaverse is really functions the same way, but that soft, culture, soft, soft power um, uh, culture is basically through the lens of gaming. But how difficult is it to choose what games are going to work? Because, I mean, there's a lot of games in the world, right? It's like, there's a lot of apps in the Apple App Store, and 99% of them don't. Now, you know, you do a lot of investing in this space. At this particular nexus is one of your key focuses. How the hell do you find what you think is going to be successful? Because I find that really difficult. Yeah, so... One of the uh, real difficulties in the traditional gaming world has been that gaming was considered very much a hit-driven business, um, much, I guess, like Hollywood, right? You, you, you know, and that's one of the reasons why much of the funding and investment would typically go to sort of people who've had historical successes, because it's a little bit like, well, if Steven Spielberg makes a movie, chances are it's really good. So here, take my money, right? That's kind of the... And, and, and gaming has functioned in many ways the same way. Uh, and then you needed the big studios, whether this was EA or Activision or, you know, um, Nexon or those companies who would have the financial muscle to finance these incredible games and then hopefully see them succeed. And that's the traditional model. And so typically VCs have stayed away from this because it was very hard for them to understand. Well, how do I know this is going to work? Because it's not very scientific. It's it's a little bit of a sort of, you know, it's, again, it's culture. It's It's sort of a feeling. It's... It's like taking a bet on a person's creative idea. And, you know, it's not just a, you know, small investment. You know, some of these games cost hundreds of millions of dollars to produce. So you're taking a really big bet to, to make it work. And you have elements like maybe access to distribution, special relationships, all these things that maybe you can leverage. But broadly speaking, you're taking a bet on a very talented team. And that's because most games today still have very inflationary designs, which means that the gaming economy itself is not a value. And the users themselves are really only experiencing the game as a form of entertainment. But what's changed, of course, is that because of the amount of time people spend on games, to the gamer, so the game company who's making the game, it's entertainment. So they monetize it like a movie almost, just maybe in better ways. But for the gamer, it's not entertainment. It's actually much closer to their personal identity. 
when you play a game and you have a rank, it means something. When you buy a skin, you show it off to your friends um, or when you win it in a competition and it's your social status. So, to, so the relationship between how the gamer sees his relationship with the game has become different from how the game studio sees it, which sees it generally just as an avenue of monetizing and, and driving value. So, so this is one of the reasons why we focus on gaming and block, uh, so blockchain and gaming, because gamers already had a sense of ownership, even though they're just renting. And so therefore we felt that that was sort of one of the easiest and best paths of adoption. Although, you know, there are some differences where in the West, as of late, you know, many Western players are not so positive around um, blockchain games um, because of the fact that, you know, it appears to them sort of the sort of extreme capitalization and sort of financification of that. But in the East, in Asia, everyone loves it and it's, 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 it's all over it. So it's a very, it's, a, it's an interesting sort of, um, um, sort of difference there. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Why is there that pushback that we've seen when people have looked at kind of introducing NFTs to traditional gaming world and the gamers have been completely up and up, but they could, they'll be monetized in other ways, which is weird. So it's not like they're not monetized anyway. Why, why that? It's a really interesting question, and it took me a while to understand it. But let me first sort of um, talk about a little bit some of the, the, the difference between sort of um, the Asian gamer that what he's used to from a design and from the Western gamer. So Western game design has typically been centered more around a more, let's call it sort of, I guess, socialist equitable type structure, more based on skill uh, and a kind of merit. Um, whereas, um, so whereas uh, in the East, actually uh, with free to play, they really sort of pioneered that in the early days. It was quite okay to sort of, you know, pay for success in a sense, sort of pay to win. So I would, I would buy a better sword and I would get ahead and that's okay. You know, and, and the other players wouldn't consider that as something that was unfair because he paid the money to do so and he could enjoy that. And so, so that's a little bit of that. So free to play in the early days, you know, we're talking about maybe 10, 11 years ago, had a similar reaction. If you look for articles in the West, when people talk about the free to play business model, which basically is a predominant gaming model today, uh, you know, many of them were railing against it and saying this is going to pervert the sort of gameplay because back then it was literally either a subscription, right? World of Warcraft was a subscription-based game or you would pay a one-off like 50 or $60 for the game and that's it, you never had to pay any more. Right? Um, and then when free-to-play came, the game was actually entirely free and then you would actually end up paying for, you know, additional services or functions or skins, whichever. So, so there's a little bit of uh, that sort of cultural difference that sort of kicked that off. But I think the, um, the, the, the bigger sort of, I guess, revolt, you could say, amongst certain, it's not, it's not true for everyone, but certainly they're very vocal about this, has to do with this criticism around the financification of games. Now, if you know how the game industry works, you are already heavily financified anyway. The only difference is that none of that value goes to the player, it goes entirely to the game studio. So there's a little bit of that uh, sort of lack of knowledge as to what happens. Because actually, if a gamer actually got to understand properly that his time, it's not just him paying money, but that his time inside the game adds to the network effect and possibly creates, you know, maybe hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of more long-lasting value to the game economy and therefore to his value, the way you think about your contribution to the game changes entirely. Right? You're, you're, you're going to say, wait a second, if you're making this much value for me, is, it that, is that reasonable? Right? But of course, they never know this, and therefore they make the assumption that it's free and you know, the whole thing... The, and therefore, there's not that much value, which is, by the way, how social media companies work as well. Right? They, they, they entrap you in that thinking that, well, you get it for free, so don't expect yeah. much, right? There's like, nothing reality, for free in this world. There's nothing for free, right? And you know, in the meantime, they're making billions of dollars based on your time and attention. So, so it's a little bit of the same. But the other thing that I observed, you know, I was stuck in the U.S. for, for a long time because, because of COVID, and, you know, normally living in Hong Kong, actually they banned all flights back to Hong Kong for a long time. So, so I was stuck there. Um, I got to sort of um, learn a little bit of the American nuance hanging out with my very libertarian Democrat friends. 
And what surprised me, because I was, you know, talk about crypto, of course, right? And it'd be like, why, you know, you're, you're really uh, an ultra-libertarian, but you don't like crypto. I don't understand. Explain this to me, right? You know, what is, what is, what is, what is wrong here, right? And I came to understand, at least with my sort of sample group, that it wasn't a revolt specifically on crypto as it was on capitalism. And so the heart of, I think, what's happening in, for instance, in America is no longer, you know, because from an outside lens, we look at America, you know, America is the capitalist capital, right? It's, it's everything is around capitalism. But actually, when you start and looking at what's happening in the Democratic Party, and when you're thinking of what's happening with, you know, the rise of people like Bernie Sanders, who all have, you know, well-intentioned, you could say, but it comes from a different lens, which is that the system that, you know, the capitalist system is viewed by many uh, of that particular uh, sort of thinking as bad. Uh, and, and money itself has, has now gotten in the eyes of some this feudal context, as in if you have money, you make more money and you retain your power because of the monopoly of money. All right, so so it's a, it's the thing of the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, uh, and you know when COVID happened, that was exacerbated, right? When COVID happened, it wasn't that all of us were struggling equally. It was actually the ones who had money made even more money, and the ones who struggled actually really struggled, and and were worse off. And so so this idea of uh, crypto and the criticism is this is just a tool for the rich. It's a way for the rich to get richer. It's all part of the you know, we, we see this narrative over. And then, of course, when you get, you know, people showing off their wealth in a certain way, which is, you know, particularly tasteless when the rest of the world is struggling, right? All these things um, add to this narrative. Then the introduction of what appears to be a capitalist, strong capitalist narrative into a gaming world that is generally designed originally in the West to be more egalitarian, you know, more sort of uh, merit in a traditional merit-based system, then it becomes problematic for them because in a game you could be playing with a high school teacher and a CEO and a kid together, and it didn't matter, um, you know, what you are. But in the real world, it does matter, right? Those those communities wouldn't normally mix. And by the way, you know, I wouldn't say America was always like this, but because of the rising wealth inequality, it's become more like it. So capitalism um, sort of is, has become classist in a sense to the West. Whereas in Asia, uh, sort of capitalism and sort of the democratic system as well is fairly new, like, like South Korea. And even though there is, of course, you know, strong inequity, the net benefit, like we have in living memory, you know, um, like my parents, for instance, would remember a time in where they did not have property rights, where there were no capitalist benefits, where you couldn't have, you know, <laughs> have rights and you couldn't have income. And so for them, it's a net, net positive. It, um, and and whereas I think that uh, if you look at the last 20 years, it hasn't had that effect for especially young people, for instance. Um, and, and, uh, and that's probably one of the big reasons why there's been sort of um, a revolt in that. Although I think, you know, once people understand it, they'll, they'll come around because ownership will give them more control and more, more, more rights and, and therefore a way to have a certain kind of power within the ecosystems, the games that they love. But they don't understand that. I also think that America um, has started taking elements of democracy for granted. And I've looked at this for a long time and thought, well, really, crypto is actually apolitical. There's very few political fights that go on in crypto. And the reason being is really when you think about it, it is a capitalist system with progressive values because it's based around community, right? It's based around everybody participates in the spoils which is a progressive value, but you get the opportunity to create wealth as well. For me, it's like this is what we've kind of been waiting for because the two sides have been splitting further and further apart and never the twain shall meet. And here is a system that allows participation by everybody, but a meritocracy and opportunity as well. I agree with that. I think you know one of the sort of things that really draws us to sort of blockchain and Web3 is the fact that you can participate in the shared network effect. And that in the end of the day, yes, some people might make a lot more money than you, but if you are within the network, then you can participate in the network as well and therefore gain if as others gain too, right? And really, to me, this is one of the benefits of sort of actually a kind of positive form of capitalism, which is capitalism is the incentive system 
that you know drives innovation and drives growth, and that's all really important. But the problem is that, especially in certain parts of the world, um, America being perhaps one of them, capitalism has become very zero-sum. And as a result of that, um, the growth of someone comes at the expense of someone else, right? And that basically is, you know, one of the sort of, I guess, big, big problems. Um, and unfortunately, I think traditional venture capital has also started to exacerbate this because the amount of venture capital that is pouring into companies today is far, far greater, even in this supposed, you know, sort of, you know, bear market uh, in comparison to, to anything else because everyone's looking for the winner. And, you know, and if you end up putting tremendous amounts of capital into one company to, you know, have them sort of try and succeed, then they, you know, it becomes a zero-sum outcome again at the expense of others. And so I think this, this, this idea, therefore, that actually with Web3, I can participate in this. So, you know, you can, you can make, you know, much more money than me, but I will still be net better off because of the fact that you've made so much money in this ecosystem as an example, and therefore I can benefit from that. It's, it's, it's really very powerful. But I do want to sort of, um, sort of uh, comment on, you know, blockchain being apolitical. While I think blockchain as a technology, obviously as a technology, arguably is apolitical, but I think of blockchain as a political system, right? The fact that it's transparent, the fact that it has, you know, these, these frameworks, the fact that you have governance on them, and or the way that you run governance sort of embeds a political system and a kind of community that is drawn to this particular political system or framework um, into it, um, which I think is um, also really powerful. And I think you know, especially as DAOs are becoming much more popular. So you're thinking of it as a third way, essentially, which is how I've thought about it. Yes, yes, correct. Um, and I also think it's a wonderful way to reintroduce democratic values, because I feel that democracy, particularly in the U.S., has been taken for granted because it's been there forever, right? And and you know, if people actually valued in the democratic institution as something precious, then we would be seeing a lot more vote voting than you know maybe sometimes barely over 50%. Right? And, and, um, and by bringing in democratic systems in sort of, you know, the way that our games are run or, you know, in the metaverse, um, you know, with tokens or with whatever our in, in everyday interaction, you start to learn why the democratic system is perhaps important or valuable. You can also iterate on it and improve on it. And you also don't feel powerless because in a sense, Everything we do in life is generally built on a consensus. You know, how we negotiate with our family, where we go for dinner, what movie should we watch. Right? We're building consensus every day. We just never think of it as a system, right? Um, so we're not really powerless, right? But then we think of this grand scale of the, of the country we might live in, and we say, I, my voice doesn't count. I'm just one out of a gazillion. But when you are constantly uh, in that system, you realize that even small decisions you make have potentially big impacts, you will take it seriously. And I think, I think uh, blockchain you know, has that capacity to, to reintroduce these values um, for those that may have forgotten what they stand for. I think you raise a really important point is the iteration on democratic systems that can be now done. Because we're stuck with a lot of broken systems that were developed two or 300 years ago. You, <laughs> yes. know, you think of the British parliamentary system or the US system. And you can't, you simply can't change them because they're so ingrained. It's not in anybody's favor to do so. But now we're being able to try all sorts of stuff. I had a great chat with um, Kimball Musk about what he's been doing with charitable DAOs and how you mm. can redistribute philanthropy in a more efficient, localized level by using a DAO structure. I think there's a lot to come. And I thought that the Constitution DAO was a huge breakthrough in something else here as well. You know, it didn't work, but what it showed is how fast you can coalesce capital around a particular purpose. Um, I'm just staggering. One of the things where we're, you know, so I'm on the special council of the Bitcoin um, sort of uh, DAO, and it's really interesting. You know, on one hand, a lot of people uh, were originally quite critical of a DAO because they're like, well, you know, how can you make a decision on consensus? Everything will take forever to build, you know, <laughs> nothing can get done, right? Um, but then if you think about what happened with ApeCoin, it's been barely six months since ApeCoin was launched. And not only does it have you know, a massive token, that's just one thing, but it has an active community. It's gone through multiple proposals, has, you know, is, is, is building you know, cool new products that basically have been voted on by the community. And, um, and the progress that ApeCoin has done over six months 
is faster than many startups that have emerged with perhaps more significant capital over that same period of time. So to me, it's actually living proof that uh, you know you can sort of move fairly quickly also in a um, in a uh, sort of more democratic system, if you will, because what happens is that when the decision is being made, it is voted through you know basically uh, the the token holders, and then there is full legitimacy. It's no longer a guessing. I think you might like this. But what is the what is the voting participation rate versus what it is in a regular system? I guess it's still lower because people don't really understand. You know, I've never voted with my eight tokens. I've had eight tokens since they launched, but I've never voted with them. Yes. Uh, so the the number of participation obviously is is um, is relative to the amount of tokens in circulation is is still is still low, but the participation of the members that are active is quite high. And I think one of the reasons why the participation also is low is because quite a few of the ApeCoin is still in centralized exchanges. Uh, and, and as a result of that, they're not being moved out for voting, right? But if you hold it basically in your MetaMask or in, 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 in you know, basically uh, outside of a, uh, an exchange, then you can actually start using it uh, to vote and so on. Uh, and, um, and so, yes, the participation rate isn't obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's nowhere near a sort of, you know, mass participation, but that's the goal. But more importantly, though, the community that's building the core of that is very involved, and you know, you know, we're we're now sort of reviewing um, and and approving for vote for votes. You know, sometimes up to three to four proposals a week in in, in some cases, um, and lots of ideas are incoming, which is also incredibly powerful because that means people are inspired to present their ideas. Whereas in the beginning, they were a little gun shy or maybe maybe even cynical, right? Uh, I'm not going to submit an idea. No, nope, it's not going to go through. Who cares, right? And then when they start seeing, wait, actually, this project got funded or people got this happening, whatever, you know, then, um, then they started uh, to become sort of more active. So, so it's early days, but the point being is all of that took place in just six months. And that kind of progress, you know, for most companies, they, can, they don't even achieve that in, in years. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the whole project. So what are you seeing in gaming now that's getting you excited? The, the early stage stuff that you're getting a look at? Because you're, you know, we talked about this last time, you're basically looking, getting to look five years ahead of everybody else at what's coming. What are you looking at that says, you know, this is fascinating where this is going? Quickly on the gaming side of things, you know, I think we, we certainly... Um, had a hand in sort of helping grow the entire blockchain gaming space. You know, and as I said earlier, almost all of the funding in gaming basically went to Web3 gaming, which for us means as you know, that you know, blockchain gaming is now a foregone conclusion. One could argue that perhaps a year or a year and a half ago, it was still more of a promise. But with the kind of billions of dollars that have now been funded for blockchain gaming companies, it's only a matter of time before an incredibly awesome game. And some of them that are out are pretty awesome already. That can really sort of you know um, uh, bring over the non-blockchain gamer who basically wants the benefit of ownership, but doesn't necessarily need to understand the intricacies of you know what is crypto and all that kind of stuff, right? And so one of the examples of a project that we're obviously big supporters of and, and backers of is one called Phantom Galaxies. Phantom Galaxies had a very unusual launch last year in that they made an entirely free mint as a form of user acquisition first, and basically giving out half a million NFTs. And then launch the alpha of the game <laughs> without a token sale, without raising any revenues or monies from this, um, and got a community super excited. And then after that proof point was made and people were able to play basically a AAA game that was built on Unreal, then ended up basically going out and, and doing a planet sale. Uh, and what's also interesting in this kind of innovation is that there was no token sale. You bought the planet, and if you work the planet, then that's how you earn your tokens. Kind of sort of a proof of work, but a proof of, or maybe proof of play work, shall we say, as opposed to the you know, traditional kind of proof of work. Uh, and so that's how you would then mint the token that could then be used uh, inside the game. And, and uh, ended up generating a sum total of about $23 million of planet sales during the bear market. So, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, if you, if you create some innovative ideas or you create high quality projects, you, there's still plenty of money around because the community and the market is excited for that. So, so the other thing is that because so much capital is flowing in from other investors as well, um, not just ourselves, we're going to see, we believe, in the next sort of, you know, 18 months or so, give or take, uh, not just an explosion of really high quality games, but as a result, also a large number of mass adoption 
from that kind of uh, ecosystem because the regular gamers are going to come into blockchain gaming whether they know it or not. And, uh, and I think it will be led by Asian gamers because they're actually wanting this, whereas the Western gamer, you know, a good number of them, uh, are sort of not sure about this or don't like it at all. And so they'll, but again, I think they'll catch up as, we, as they did with free-to-play. So our projection is that we think we're going to have you know, over 300 million users um, coming into sort of the, the, the Web3 space just on gaming in the next, uh, in the next uh, 18 months or so, give or take. I also love this new business model that's forming, and you know, we're even doing it at Real Vision now, which is you start with a community. You don't even have a product. You may have a vague idea of a product, but what you do is coalesce a community around a commonality of vision or ideas, and then you build product with the community, and you get better product market fit and better adoption. The big thing that a community-driven approach does, which I think for a lot of, because they call it traditional builders, is difficult, is because traditional builders aren't necessarily consensus builders, right? One of the common comments I get is, well, Steve Jobs wouldn't have run a business like this. Yeah, but not everyone's Steve Jobs, right? And and Steve Jobs may have a may be a great visionary, but perhaps he wasn't, you know, a community builder. It's a different kind of builder. And that's fine. People can build things in their own way that suits them. But the powerful thing about the community is that when you make a decision to build something because you've got the endorsement of the community, is it comes with immediate legitimacy. Whereas before you launch a product, you have to then sort of sell the legitimate value and you sell why it was a good idea. Whereas as you form the, the product concept or whatever it is you're doing with the community, then legitimacy is established. And whether it works or not, everyone has a stake because that's what they wanted. And they go, yeah, maybe that didn't work, but we all own it, right? We all own our faults together. We all made this mistake together and that's okay. Let's go for part two. It's, very, it's a very different feeling as opposed to that's all on you. Right, so it's a, it's a very different um, um, experience. The other area that we started focusing on um, as well, because we feel that you know, sort of the blockchain gaming segment is sort of well in its way, is how do we bring more mass adoption to the space? And so we started focusing our lens on education. And you know, we acquired a company called TinyTab um, not too long ago, and TinyTab is a teacher marketplace. And just what you know, I had just uh, mentioned maybe earlier in, in your show. You know, what, what NFTs do is they take content and turn them into assets. And then these assets have the ability to have these network effects, one of them being capital formation. And in this case, this is a marketplace where teachers create content uh, and they make roughly anywhere from a couple hundred dollars, in some cases thousands of dollars, and in rare cases tens of thousands of dollars a year from the content that they create. Um, so it's like, it's like a sort of... Um, sort of Teacher made class, sort of teacher made content for other teachers or for other parents to use. Now, through the ownership of the non fungible tokens, whoever buys the NFT can now you know, become a publisher of the work, and as a result of that, be entitled to you know the the income that uh, these the, the material that the teachers originally made uh, sort of uh, have as a, as a share. Um, this is no different than if you were sort of a buyer of an app on the app store, for instance, that generates a certain amount of revenue. Now, a teacher that makes maybe $1,000 a year on content is nice, right? It's obviously good supplemental income. But if you think of this as a yield product that can generate, say, 10% yield, right? Or like, like, like owning a house, then maybe it's worth 10 or 20x of what the actual sort of income is. You give a teacher $10,000 suddenly, it changes their life. And we've seen some of that a little bit already with, um, you know, with NFT art. Um, but without the actual sort of certainty of the income, or at least a potential of the income, it's more about sort of maybe the scarcity of the community value, but still capital formation became possible with art. And now we think this kind of capital formation can start coming in sort of educational content as well. And if that works, which is of course a big experiment, then not only could we onboard sort of an entire community of people that are actually, you know, frankly, at the bottom tier of society in terms of economic value, which is teachers, even though they provide perhaps one of the most important services to you know, <laughs> our communities, uh, which is to educate our children. Arguably, they spend more time in school than they perhaps even spend with their actual parents, at least during a weekday. And what happens if teachers are educated on crypto, understand how to set up a wallet? Well, you know, they're probably the best people in the world to teach others how to do it, since that's what they do. Um, not just our children, but just everyone else. So that's kind of what we're hoping we can achieve for a broader kind of mass adoption. 
and also a demonstration um, of the added value that that blockchain can do. Because just like what it did with gaming and what it did with art, you know, um, the power of blockchain is that it can actually create value in areas of, of of the ones that are underprivileged or where value has not been fairly distributed. And I think teachers and educators are one of those as well. Yeah, and also in this digital world, we can have a leveling of wages. So, you know, you can be doing something in Ghana or Nigeria and you can compete on roughly the same wages as an American, which is game-changing. Yes, because it is. They were always physical location of work, so therefore the employer Microsoft would go to Ghana or Nigeria and pay you a tenth of the U.S. salary, and it was a labor arbitrage. In a digital world, there's less labor arbitrage in that respect. Yes, um, and also you have the data transparency, which is really one of the most powerful things around blockchain, because now you know whatever the data is that is being delivered or is being sort of you know sold or transferred for you can immediately see what that value is and therefore ask for your relative fair share. Whereas before, you would never know what that is anyway. Right? You don't know what your time is worth on Facebook anyway. Therefore, you don't know what to ask for and you'll just take whatever they give you, uh, which, is, which is the other thing, right? So I think this, this, um, it, it creates um, data as that kind of sort of market commodity and actually does what transparent markets do anyway. It's the more transparent the market, the more efficient it becomes. But it's the same thing here, right? Which is if you make you know, data as a commodity more transparent and you know where the value flows, then ultimately you make the trade of that data or its derivative uh, more transparent and more efficient as well. But it might also level wages, much like globalization in physical workforce, the kind of the way that the West, the developed countries that charge higher wages, end up lowering their wages. So everybody has to work more. It's kind of, it's not straightforward that it's a, that it, it levels everybody up in the third world to be equal to the first world. What we found is it destroyed wage growth in the developed world. So I think that may be true when the market is mature. But right now, we don't think the market is mature. No, it's still early. Yeah, it's still early, right? And, and at that point, you know, which I think is obviously a little bit out in the future, you know, new systems will have to come into place and, you know, we, we, all, all of the companies in the space will have to sort of adjust as we have with slowing economies. This is basically a national problem, right? Oh, GDP growth is no longer 10, 50% a year. What do we do with 2% growth, 1% growth? Okay, we got to do these things, right? But we've got a while out before that actually happens because we're still at single digit percentile global adoption. So if we believe that Web3 is the natural iteration of where the internet is going, then we have, you know, at least, you know, several billion people more to grow into. Uh, and, and you know, I, I look at the metaverse, the development of Web3 in the metaverse very similarly to how, um, you know, the growth of China, right? You know, in the early days, China kept growing because as an economy, it was just exploding in all these areas and all these new things were being developed. But it was hard for someone outside of China to understand what was going on. And to them on the outside, it felt like a scam. It felt like, you know, it's impossible. And, a lot of people, if you may remember, were talking about you know, the downfall of China and how it was all going to implode because it was all not real. Well, you know, I mean, you know, China certainly has issues to go through, but it's all real. It's a real economy. It's, it's doing reasonably well um, and it's not going away. Right. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's similar. Uh, you know, the growth of China um, for the last uh, sort of 20 years uh, up to up to when you know, COVID happened, I think the metaverse Will, will grow in the same way because adoption will continue to just, you know, more people will just join the members. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Final thing is, one of the other ways I'm looking at mass adoption is ticketing. Mm. You know, and I know you've been involved in, in uh, Dapper. Dapper's just announced with Ticketmaster. I mean, the guys at Ticketmaster, nobody realizes. Uh, I know them really well. I mean, they've issued 10 million NFTs. They've probably issued more NFTs than anybody else in the world, and nobody realizes. Mm. Because they've seen that Web3 is kind of the answer to their world of music and sports and 
tickets and stuff like that. That's an area to me that feels very intuitive because tickets have become digital anyway. So if you have a wallet, you don't even know it's an NFT. It's irrelevant. It's just this is your way and you get to keep it afterwards and you can trade it afterwards. And I think that's going to onboard hundreds of millions of people really quick because people don't even know that it, need, it doesn't need to be block. They don't need to know it's blockchain. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, we, I, I agree with this. We, you know, we actually backed another company called MoviePass, which sort of is going through a little bit of a rebirth, you know, having sort of gone through, um, you know, it's a, it's a new company, but, you know, Stacy is the one that's the, the original founder of MoviePass. And he's, he's basically doing it in a Web3 way uh, and sort of in his own way, looking to reinvent the, the sort of the, the movie ticketing business through that approach. So, and again, for onboarding, I think it's a very natural one. People, people, it, it seems to make much more sense. And it also becomes, in some ways, a kind of a tradable asset if you want it to be, for instance, uh, which obviously it has within it the embedded utility of using it. Yeah, I mean, I've still got my, above me here is my ticket from Live Aid in 1985 and my program from Live Aid, you know, because they were a cultural moment in time that had significance, not only to me, but probably about a billion people. So, you know, Tickets are really interesting because they are a really special moment in time, whether you're at a sports game or a music event that mattered to all those group of people there. And so they probably do have value. Not everything has value, but they can have value, or at least you get to keep them forever in a secure manner. And the other thing is that the value, and I think this is so important, the value doesn't have to be valuable from a sales standpoint. It can be just personally valuable to you, you know, as an heirloom, as some remembrance, uh, you know, and the other thing is, you know, what non-fungible tokens and the whole Web3 space does digitally is it preserves your digital identity and gives you a digital legacy that is truly yours. Because that's the other thing. Whatever we build digitally, the reputation and the image and whatever actually isn't ours really, right? If you build a presence on, on Instagram, you know, actually that presence isn't yours, which is the crazy thing, right? It belongs to Facebook actually, for, for instance, or whichever platform you're building you're accruing their network effect and you're not actually really getting that much value out of it. You're literally getting sort of, you know, the equivalent of slave wages relative to the value that you're generating from that, uh, we're generating for the platform. And, and I think this is, um, this is something so powerful because as the end user as well, you can now own a piece of that identity uh, and just passing it on is a kind of keeping of that legacy you know, one of the ways that I sometimes think of the fact that we don't own a digital space, you know, in the Web2 world is a little bit like not having your last name in some ways, because you don't have a lasting digital identity until Web3 came along, because it would be erased every time. And, you know, back in the Middle Ages, you know, basically serfs didn't have a last name, right? They were not, you know, they didn't have it because of an identity, which is one of the reasons why some of their sort of, I guess, um, sort of um, uh, descendants would be named literally after the towns or villages or whatever societies they were after because, you know, they didn't have uh, a family tree. They didn't know where they were from because they weren't meant to have an identity. They were simply, you know, laborers of whichever lord it was for. And, and they weren't supposed to have an identity beyond that. And there was, there was something sort of, you know, um, sort of really ruthless about that thinking, really, if you think about it at the end of the day, because by removing someone's identity, by not having an identity that is lasting, that you can pass on, it means that your next children, your next of kin, or whoever is part of that particular call of surf system, uh, will feel the same way and, and therefore, you know, not have an identity and a root and therefore always be servants, right? It's just kind of sort of that sort of, um, sort of classic fuel thinking. Uh, and, and while, you know, obviously we, we don't feel the same way today because, you know, we don't live in a, like in a physical world, in a feudal way, by, by actually always being subservient to a digital platform that could take away our identity or what we've built, like our apps on the App Store or our handle on Instagram or our you know, ID on, on Facebook, um, we're actually under their control. Yeah, and we lose history. You know, it's That's hard right. enough as it is. You have photographs of your grandparents and then you lose the photographs or they deteriorate. And the history and disappears over time you know i think of you know how does the human soul survive it's actually in memory it you is. know yes. it's in memory and this gives a way of kind of recording truths from whatever perspective that is in perpetuity that didn't exist because history is always written by the victors and so you kind of change the narrative 
of what it is. But blockchain is going to present, this is what the facts were at the time. What does that mean? You can interpret it differently, but it, it doesn't get spun because none of us go back and read the newspapers from you know, 1822 to get our spin. We've read it because we've read something from Neil Ferguson or somebody and we go, well, that's roughly true because he's a good guy. So I just think it's it's super fascinating. Um, yeah, look, as ever, amazing to chat to you. I think we could have spoken for a few hours because there's so much to talk about in all of this. But look, I really appreciate your time coming back on and good luck with everything. You're up to so much. You're always a huge inspiration to everybody in this space. So well done. Oh, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I think um, one of the things that uh, maybe as a, as, a, as a thought process here for us, you know, for Animoca Brands, uh, as a company, we really sort of want to build up the, the open metaverse. And so, you know, today, actually, we have over 380 investments. Um, I don't know when we spoke how many investments we had, but it was probably maybe a couple hundred less than that, right? And one of the uh, reasons we invest as prolifically as we do is not because we're hoping, I mean, of course, we want every company to succeed, but we're not doing it because every single company needs to have a 100x return. I mean, it'd be great if they did, but it's about building an ecosystem. And in some ways, we feel to us that, uh, and we hope maybe other companies can think of it in the same way, that as we keep investing in the space, it is a way of giving back to the community that has helped shape us as well, right? So, and I think that's part of the ethos of Web3. So us making many investments isn't just about, you know, making the best return only, but by investing back into the ecosystem, we ensure that the ecosystem itself has a sort of a sustainable longer path. And I also think of this in a different way of, you know, how, what if we thought of the real world or physical world in the same way that if we have success in our own life, then, you know, how do we give back? And it, by the way, we don't mean that in the sense of charity, you know, by making angel investments or supporting domestic businesses, um, actually you end up contributing back to the, the communities as well. And those communities that do that successfully actually are doing quite well. Like for instance, in the Bay Area, angel investing as a culture is embedded in that culture. And it's a, it's a much more thriving society, shall we say, than many other parts of the world, which don't have that culture, for instance. Yeah. And by doing that, you create the probability of, a, of an outcome from, you know, breakouts in the space and the overall probability of the space getting faster adoption. It's, look, it's really clever. But yeah, fantastic as ever to chat. I really appreciate it. Hi. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed listening, I've got a free membership waiting for you. If you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're not ever going back to a pre-crypto world. Blockchain technology is transforming literally everything from communities to healthcare to real estate to, well, everything. That's why in 2020, we launched Real Vision Crypto, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital assets video channel. Right now, Real Vision Crypto is helping more than 300,000 members around the world understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation and maybe of all time. And even better, Real Vision Crypto is completely free. All you need to do is input your email address and you get full access to all of the videos and the incredible emails too. Please visit realvisioncrypto.com. That's realvisioncrypto.com and start learning about this incredible world. Yeah.